It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Arsenal lays down that marker, but has anything really changed in the Premier League race? We'll talk about Monday's big result. We'll also talk about Jose, Louis, Ryan, Pep. It didn't take long for the Manchester United job to become linked with the special one. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll talk Jose, United, Boxing Day, and your feedback later in the show, but there was a rather important result since we last talked. Two first-half goals at the Emirates on Monday helped Arsenal knock off Manchester City 2-1 and restore the gap between them and first-place Leicester City to two points. Manchester City, the team that looked so good through the first month of the season, will hit Christmas Day six points off the pace. My co-hosts, Lawrence McKenna and Nipun Chopra, are joining me now. And Lawrence, if somebody had told us when we last recorded the pod on Sunday that Monday's game would end 2-1, we'd probably have nodded and said, yeah, sure, and, and maybe be a little bit rueful that it wasn't a more unpredictable result. But maybe we should pause for a moment and at least give Arsenal credit for holding serve. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, what was most interesting about the game was the fact that the Arsenal side managed to get two goals ahead, obviously, over actually quite a long time for Arsenal. Um, and it, it, the, the goals came, came in an unusual fashion, if you like, for Arsenal. And the fact that um, Man City... I don't, do, do you feel like Man City sort of had that... I don't want to say capitulated, but you know where I'm coming from on that, right? Yeah, I think I know what you mean, especially after an initial 30 minutes where they control most of the play. They control most of the play throughout this whole game. And we were kind of Nimpoon sitting there left wondering, boy, is, is this going to be the typical Arsenal story? Because it looks like City's got control of this one. And then it turned into a similar game to what we saw in January, where Arsenal on the counterattack were able to turn the game around. Yeah, it's almost like Arsenal decided uh, to focus on their strengths, which is... Uh you know, hitting City on the break, allowing City to play like the home team, even though they were away. Uh, and I think Arsenal almost had like 70%, uh, sorry, Man City ended up with almost 70% possession uh, in this game. It, it was not even close as far as possessions tactics go, but Arsenal were terrific uh, on the break. I, I thought um, all their players up front, including Joel Campbell, who not a lot of people are talking about, were really good. Uh, I think some of the thing with Joel Campbell personally is that there's a little bit of dismissal of Joel Campbell because he's not a European or a South American talent. Hmm. Uh, and I think he, in, in the last five, six, seven games that he's played for Arsenal, including a couple of those Champions League games, 
He's been really good for them and deserves a lot of credit. And and he's rightfully keeping out uh, the Ox for now. Mm. Two excellent shots in this one. Theo Ram, uh, Theo Walcott in the first half with that right hand, right footed shot from the left of the penalty area, beating Joe Hart to the far post. And then at the end of this match, Yaya Puri with that kind of left footed punch shot that looped over Petr Cech to reduce the lead to one. In between, Olivier Giroud taking advantage of Ilaki Mangala error. The weekly Mangala era that ended up being the difference in the game. Let's talk about that, gentlemen. Lawrence, I'll get your thoughts on this. It's hard to avoid more analysis or more criticism of Manchester City's defense because on both of these goals, there were obvious errors. How Walcott has that much space to cut in onto his right foot and get that shot off has to fall on Bakary Sanya. And then on the second goal, a really inexcusable mistake by Mangala trying to switch the ball to the right flank gifted Arsenal the winner. Do you think that uh, Pellegrini's got them playing in the right shape? Hmm. What, do you, what are you thinking when you, when you ask that? I, I mean, I just, I, I look at the key players and the, the fact they're trying to fit in this spine and I understand that's such a, um, that, that, you know, there, there's essentially two players playing up front with a, not a free role, but a free role within a certain area. So De Bruyne and Silver essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, kind of two floating midfields and then a very floating midfielder in Yaya Torre who sort of gets to set the pace of the game and you sort of wonder in the in the Premier League if the whole structure of the side isn't right then you know you leave a lot of people uh, open and I think Bakary Sanyu was ex- like you say exposed and you sort of feel the same about Kolarov on the other side more often than not when Sterling's not playing Kolarov looks quite exposed yeah, this is interesting, Nipun, because other people have mentioned the way that Pellegrini is setting out his midfield, and it's something that NBC analyst Kyle Martino highlighted both before and at halftime of the game. Before the game, when the lineup came out, he speculated that if Fabian Delph was going to play alongside the other holder in central midfield, that's going to be a good alignment. But what we saw is something that we've seen over previous weeks, Delph's versatility, drawing him out to the left and Pellegrini trying to create that width with a central midfielder. To what extent do you think that not only influenced Monday's result, but has influenced City Swoon? I think the reason he had those uh, those position positional changes that you uh, explained there, Richard, are simply because I think he had aligned himself to the fact that he's not going to get width from those players, neither from De Bruyne and neither from Delph. He just accepted that there would be interchange in those positions and the width would be provided by Sanya, who really struggled in this game, and, and Kolarov, who I think everyone has mentioned is better going forward than he is defensively. So in that sense, I think his idea was to make to ensure that the, the middle of the park was tight, uh, that Yara Ture got on the ball, was allowed to drift into positions, that David Silva was allowed to drift into uh, various positions. We've seen Silva pop up on either side. So based on those ideas, I think that's where uh, that's what Pellegrini was thinking. Of course, when we look back at it now, we can kind of judge uh, where, where it went wrong. Yeah. Lawrence, it seems like we're highlighting a lot of individuals here. I think we're all... We've all been fairly skeptical of Yaya Turi's performance and sometimes effort this year. Sanya has, has struggled a lot. Um, we see Delph kind of being put in precarious situations. You talk about the free rolls people have had. Everybody has highlighted Mangala's deficiencies, and when Demichelis has been in there, he hasn't been any better. Is it just a matter of City, one, needs to have their stars healthy, but two, needs to come up with some solution to these players that just haven't played well over they the last They do have month? their stars healthy. Look at that starting yeah, eleven. Well, you're, that's well, ridiculous. You're, you, you, to a certain extent, you're right, but obviously I mean, they don't have company there. Them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they they mean, have Aguero and Silva back. 
but you, uh, I, yeah, although, yeah, Silverback. Now imagine that as a player. Um, uh, all I'm, <laughs> all I'm saying is, if you put it, it, all the players that they've taken these players from other teams, so you know the Fantastic Four that they've assembled or the Fantastic Eleven would all be starting for a lot of other sides and did start for all the other sides that they took them from, hmm. and they got and they were stars within those teams. Right. So. I guess there's a point to be made there that, you know, uh, I know the mercenary thing is sort of um, put towards City very often, but that there's kind of an element of uh, not the players having the mercenary problem, but Man City almost having, uh, bringing that problem upon themselves, if you like. They have to have their cake and eat it. I don't know. I, I, I see I see the logic there, and we've talked about the mercenary issue with Newcastle. But with Manchester City, yeah, but it's, what I'm saying is, I'm I'm saying it's City who treats who fields them like mercenaries. It's not the player who or the players who act like mercenaries. Hmm. Nipun, what do you think about that? I don't know. I, I think with it I sounds don't like bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of. I guess in my, from my opinion, it's a bit of a pedantic point. Uh, I mean, is it is it any better to play? to be played as a mercenary or be a mercenary? I don't know. I, I guess it's, are we arguing semantics there? I don't think there's that much of a difference, personally. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm arguing about the culture of a club and the way that the, the, they're, they're treated and the way that they're kind of brought through, if you like. And oh. I, so I, I think it is quite important, the way that City are constructing a side. And I think and it's important as far as, I think it's important as far as January goes, because if part of the thesis here is that Manchester City on an individual by individual basis can improve. They can bring in another central defender. They can uh, bring in another right back if Pablo Zabaleta doesn't come back. Does bringing in more players in January help or hurt the problem that you're talking about? I think from that perspective, Lawrence, it is an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still don't think they need to bring anyone in in January. Surely you train those. Surely you just train with those players and you trust that they're all of the quality and good enough. Well, I think they're falling into a very Arsenal problem, Nipun, because I think the one thing that was evident on Monday is that Manchester City is not going to be themselves until Vincent Kompany and Pablo Zabaleta are back. That back four is just too bad, and they don't have enough cover in midfield. But when those guys are there, as their record with Kompany indicates this year, they still haven't lost a league game when Kompany's healthy, then they're going to be okay. So the question, I think, for Manchester City going into the January window is if they truly believe they are going to get enough minutes out of Zabaleta and company between January and May. Because if they don't think they are, then they probably need to buy, even though they've spent lavishly over the last four years. They still need something else. Yeah, but I uh, just to throw that back at you a little bit, I think I, I read a lot about this, about the injury thing uh, with, with City. And of, of course, company's important. He, he's he's the captain. Everyone at that club respects him. Uh, he's, you know, he's one of those players that no matter what club you support, you respect company because of the way he conducts himself and all that. And he's a terrific defender on his day, although he is also prone to some mistakes Um you know, much like Otamendi and the Michaelis. But anyway, what I want to point out is the 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 rationale that this is an effect of the injury, the fact that Aguero wasn't totally fit, company, etc. We city supporters also need to realize the number of players that Arsenal had missing: uh, Alexis Sanchez, Wilshire, Rosicky, uh, Welbeck, Coquelin, Catorla, uh, Mikel Arteta. So those are at least five. Out of those players are players that you think would start have started in this game. So essentially, are we saying that a half strength Arsenal has just beat maybe a 
75% strength. I guess I would dispute that this is a half-strength arsenal. Just because you are missing players doesn't mean the, mm-hmm. the players that you're replacing them but, but with don't you are think any weaker. Casorla starts. I think everyone agrees Casorla starts. But is he more effective than Ramsey has been over the last three or four games in his place? I think so. I, I, well, that's that's difficult to say, but I think any I think most people would like argue San, that Sanchez would start. But then from that same position, Theo Walcott got a goal. Um, we've seen Arsenal. Arteta would probably start ahead of Flamini. I mean, the, the, well, and then Art, like Arteta is not exactly a a uh, a foolproof option there. And I think the other difference. <laughs> I, I think the other difference here is that Arsenal certainly has their injury problems, but the injury yeah. problems seem endemic to the club. Mm-hmm. So to say, well, what if Arsenal didn't have injuries? It'd be like saying, well, what if Arsenal won a league? It's that hypothetical. With but City, could you say make that same argument, Richard, about company? I mean, right, right, right. That's what I was getting to. With City, we now have to assess whether they are now in that same boat. Because mm-hmm. if they are in that same boat, then they need to go to the solution that Arsenal fans have wanted of Wenger. They need to buy. Mm-hmm. Arsenal fans are saying Wenger needs to buy players as much to improve the quality of positions like strikers, striker and defensive midfielder as to augment the depth issues that result from the club's inherent problems with injuries. Now, if City feels like they have inherent problems with injuries as it concerns company and Zavaleta, then they probably need to buy. Yeah, I, I don't have mm-hmm. a counter. I think that's fair. I, I think that's why they bought Otamendi, but I think they've had a lot more injuries than they maybe anticipated. Lawrence, you got some thoughts on that before we switch to Arsenal? Basically, I, I you know, uh, this side have brought somewhat that upon themselves. Uh, it seems again uh, like a club that's all, almost at a halfway house, and uh, you know that they, they had to do this essentially to catch up with everyone else to convince other players to come through in their own minds. And City mm-hmm. uh, used this rhetoric of you know, I mean, they used it to justify paying fifty million for Sterling and justify Sterling's actions for getting out of the club and you know a lot of their ambassadors on the radio use it very often for money talks you know money is the way of the game now and it's all very naturalized and I think we discuss it within that environment as and you know we speak so much about why don't they go out and buy someone else in January then because they've already got bloody Mangala and Otamendi at the back two players that they bought in for a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. very true but Ultimately, you have to look at some players as sunk costs, and I certainly don't think they should look at that with Nicholas Otamendi. But with Mangala, I just don't know about him if he's ever going to get to the level that's going to justify that price tag. And then at right back, if Zabaleta isn't healthy, they've got nothing there. Sanya hasn't shown no signs. Go ahead. But that's ridiculous. Sanya was possibly that everyone was saying he was one of the best right backs in the world when they signed him. He was he was almost that second to Daniel. Right but that doesn't matter right now. But it, but but it does for saying. And, and it does, I guess, speak to the point that we were making earlier, uh, at least talking about uh, mercenaries and the fact that, you know, when someone comes to a club, they're at the height of the game because they were part of a wonderful system and they're fielded as and essentially hung out to dry by by this. Isn't it more likely that Sanya has just aged? Uh, possibly so. But then I, I still think that there are other players out there. I mean, he's 32 now. Sure. But then there are other players out there who are around the same age, say Glenn Johnson etc etc and you know they're not depreciating to this degree yeah yes that's it's certainly possible let's talk about arsenal although i don't feel like there's a lot to talk about with arsenal on this podcast because we've we've examined the gunners so much this year that i think we're all out there as far as how we feel about arsenal and even before this match we talked about how we would feel about the team if they did get these three big points so let me just throw this out there to both of you guys has your perception of arsenal or their chances this season changed at all as a result of Monday, Nipun? It changed before Monday for me. So not because of Monday. No. 
Okay. How about you, Lawrence? Uh, no, I think it's more my perception of what City could do against a side like Arsenal. Mm. So again, it's less. It's less. It's like it's like the theory of uh, you know that thing in Futurama, the spaceship. The spaceship stays in one place, but the whole universe moves. <laughs> Arsenal are the spaceship right now. That's but, but uh, to some extent, that's testimony to what uh, Arsene Wenger's done. And I think you know essentially that's the point that he's managed to get them to a very stable place. And all this instability is actually serving Arsenal quite well right now. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we don't doubt that Arsenal, viable title contenders, and now we see a path to the title for them, even if we're not putting them in the number one spot on our list. And I think that makes it even more important that City get their act together because Arsenal has now proved, or not now proved, but they have shown over this season that if City doesn't get their act together, Arsenal's not going to gift them, gift them this title. Everybody, let's take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Manchester United coaching situation, as well as get to some of your feedback and hear from our long-lost co-host here on the World Soccer Talk podcast. Which long-lost co-host might you ask? Well, you're probably not asking if you listen to this podcast at all or you have listened over the last 5, 6, 24 years. You know that Kartik Krishnayar is missing. He will be back next week, but he did get Wait, in Karthik, touch. Wait, Kartik's missing? Yeah, you're not Kartik. Let's not go Wait, there, Nipun. what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you're not the one that should be stereotyping here. Uh, <laughs> Kartik did get in touch to give us his top fours. Uh, and as a result of this week, he still has... Well, actually, I shouldn't say still has... He's vaulted Manchester United to number one on his year-end top four list. I I assume that's based on the logic that Van Hall gets sacked and they replace him with somebody better. Uh, Who that is, we know Kartik is not a fan of Mourinho and Manchester United. And Ancelotti might not be available. I guess guess conceivably, Ancelotti could do six months in Manchester before going to Germany, but Ancelotti's headed for Bayern Munich. He has United first, Manchester City second, Arsenal third, and Leicester City fourth. So almost all of us have Leicester City in their top fours at this point. Uh, let's go ahead and shift to some user feedback at this point. Uh, a user on t- Twitter, at Graylo, G-R-A-Y-L-O. Stop. Please stop. stop. Stop now. Is that the feedback? <laughs> <laughs> that was just stop. for you, Lawrence. That's that your, was just where's for the pause? That's your feedback. Or I thought that you were saying we should just stop paying attention to Twitter entirely. Which I Twitter? thought you were going to say stop because you're calling them users. Like, who, who, who says yeah, users? Another human old, interactive show. Old say said, users, Nipun. <laughs> Using his input keyboard, he typed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to Greylo, gentlemen. Uh, Greylo is a user. Use, hang on, user Greylo, but yeah. User Greylo. Just, just while we're talking about it, uh, speaking of Twitter problems, did anyone else see that Trevor Sinclair left his phone on a table at a party? Did and not. <laughs> for a little while, there was a teacup of a storm that Lou Van Gaal had left. And for some reason, people treated Trevor Sinclair, yes, Trevor Sinclair, as a legitimate source for Louis van Gaal news. Oh, yes. gosh, I, I heard that I was downstream on this. And I, by that time, everybody was saying there's going to be a press conference tomorrow. And Van Hall has been told today. And then eventually somebody told me, no, that ended up being a hoax. <laughs> it's where we, we, we basically used it to weed out all the people who um, copy and paste things onto their Twitter timelines. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Guys, I've got an ITK for you. And that's an in the no, just in case you don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he said, Van Gaal will leave. And then uh, five minutes later, Sinclair tweets, sorry, drunk at a party and left my phone on a table. Won't happen again. <laughs> Won't happen again. <laughs> no, please, please let it happen again. Yeah, please let it happen again. Uh, so th- this human life form user, Greylo, <laughs> on Twitter, uh, uh, he 
is in touch with Kartik and I almost every week. He's an Arsenal fan, but I think he's done a good job of kind of applying some skepticism to the claims that we make on the show. And one of the pieces of skepticism, he did the legwork to come up with the what the table would look like if you only took the results that have happened in 2015. And Arsenal would be 10 points clear at the top of that table. 10 points clear of Manchester City. Two points back of that would be Leicester. Then Manchester United would be third. Uh, Spurs, Crystal Palace, then Chelsea and Liverpool. He brings this up not to say that Arsenal is the better team out of all these, but I think he does bring it up as a point that we should consider in Impun is that there is some staying power to this form that Arsenal has. And while none of these squads and clubs are playing to be the champion of 2015, it at least hints or pushes back on the notion that Arsenal might fade this year. Oh, is that, uh, that's interesting. That's not the conclusion I actually came to from, okay. from that. Uh, so when I, when you asked me earlier if I changed my mind about Arsenal and I said it wasn't because of Monday, I changed my mind about Arsenal f- a few months ago when I started noticing, uh, um, Wenger's propensity to not be obsessed with possession football and to understand that, th- that the way forward is, uh, not possession football. I, I think Robbie must go ahead. But, well, he was doing that about halfway through last season too. Right. And it didn't, it didn't produce any, well, it produced an FA Cup, but it didn't produce any ground made up in the title race. Right. But I think now what he has is he has some key pieces there that are doing their jobs perfectly. And I think the best example of that is the, the depth. We talked about injuries, but the depth he has, quote unquote, at, uh, in that one holding position, because he, he essentially wants one holding midfielder. And the one next to him is actually just a box to box midfielder who's mm-hmm. essentially there to score goals, like a Casorla or Ramsey. So that holding position, there are three players, uh, who are Coquelin, Arteta, and, um, and Flamini. And essentially, at any given point this season, he's had one of those guys fit. And at any given point, except for maybe a couple of games that we can all think of in the Champions League, they have done a good job. So he's made this, he started this tactical system where he's given up the idea that there need to be two holding, uh, two midfielders who are going to play the ball side to side. He just wants to get the ball forward and he wants the, the flair players that he has, and he has a bunch of them, uh, to put the ball in the net. So, in that sense, I think uh, when you see these, this the fact what's irrefutable is that Arsenal has been good in 2015 as a whole. Yeah. Uh, I think it points to the fact that there's something more to be said about Arsene Wenger than the usual Wenger in, Wenger out stuff. Hmm, perhaps. Uh, another piece of uh, human user feedback from Twitter <laughs> uh, from Andy, who is at A-K-O-C-H. STP Akutstup. I'm deciding to pronounce that. Uh, Salutations, Andy. How, <laughs> gre- greetings. How, greetings, human form. How do how do Everton become quote ruthless unquote as Roberto Martinez suggested? They're playing well, but they're not winning. Is it Tim Howard inconsistency of young attackers missing McCarthy in midfield? Lawrence, what what does Everton need to do to get over this plateau that they've settled at? Very good question. Uh, because has Martinez ever um, cut sort of struck you as a ruthless figure? The opposite, right? I think that's part of the reason we all like Roberto Martinez so much. He doesn't seem ruthless at all. Well, he seems ruthlessly calm. Yeah, um, he's he's which I, he's he's surgical about his calmness. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and so I think I do think that's part of it. I mean, he's looking to. He, if you form a team in your likeness or if you form a team in the likeness that you want to see, 
then don't be surprised when it doesn't perform in the way that you haven't set it up to perform. Um, but I do see what he's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the reason they got Lukaku was because he looked like a young, audacious forward. And, the, you know, the same with Kone and the same with Delafeu. Um, and uh, essentially there are other guys within that. And I, I think I do see those qualities within the team. But it's finding those on a consistent basis. And to some extent, I mean, I don't know how you whether you guys agree with this, but it is about the players believing that they almost deserve to be there. And I think that's part of the problem. Again, maybe we're talking about a culture with a club and maybe one of the few managers that's changed a culture maybe quite consistently this season has been Spurs and Pochettino because, you know, within England, everyone just goes, well, it's Spurs. And, you know, Arsenal fans love to level that. Um, And I I just wonder whether there's a similar thing uh, going on at Everton where, you know, they're they're a club perpetually waiting to kind of be sold. Hmm. Um, And so there's this constant expectation of, well, one day we'll get there, but for now, here we are. Yeah, maybe the obvious choices are the obvious ones here too. They they either need more ruthless players or they need a more ruthless personality imprinted on them by the man in charge. Um, and I think the other thing we should consider, guys, is that maybe Everton is just playing at their level. Uh, we talk about all the talent that comes into the Premier League. We talk about the parity at the top of the league. Is it so beyond reason to think, Nipun, that this is where Everton should be? No, I think, I think you're right about that. Um, I think Everton... As long as they're in the shout for European football, I think most supporters, sad to say this, but most supporters should probably accept that just where Mm -hmm. they are financially right now. I mean, they they cannot compete for the players that the other clubs are competing for. I mean, look at their their midfield. They have uh, Tom Cleverley, Gareth Barry, uh, who's on, let's be honest, at the wrong side of his career, was a great player. Uh, Darren Gibson. and uh, when I look at that central midfield, obviously it, it cannot compete with the center midfields of other teams. But at the same time, Everton supporters should be thrilled at the attacking lineup they have with Miralish uh, and Delfeo and Lukaku and Barkley, etc. So in that sense, it, it's it's I understand it must be a little bit frustrating to be an Everton supporter, but it must be terrific to watch Everton play at the same time just based on their attacking talent. Hmm. God, imagine imagine if you were an Everton fan in a city where you had a successful rival. That would be, <laughs> that, that would be quite the imagination. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, it would Everton be quite the imagination. Right now, so uh, both Everton and whoever the hell their neighbours are can both just wallow in their own filth for a little while longer. Speaking of wallowing in filth, let's talk about Manchester United. Uh, Daniel Taylor yesterday on The Guardian had something that I thought was very interesting, at least uh, kind of subtly interesting. Daniel Taylor... Pretty reliable as far as somebody who has um, has people at Manchester United that are willing to talk to him. Uh, here's what he wrote yesterday regarding Mourinho being considered by United's board. United are acutely aware of Mourinho's strengths, but also mindful about the amount of conflict he tends to generate, as well as his reluctance to promote younger players. Ferguson regularly attracted controversy and had a fractious relationship with the Football Association, but the feeling at Old Trafford is that Mourinho goes even further with his his own outbursts and, in the worst moments, brought Chelsea into disrepute, leading to a one-match stadium ban this season. If a job offer is forthcoming, it'll be made clear to him that United expect a better standard of behavior and historically place great importance on bringing through their own players. That last sentence to me, gentlemen, is really telling, and Nipun, being a United fan, I want to talk to you about this. At the point when people at Manchester United are thinking about what they would say to Jose Mourinho if they were to present him with an offer, what kind of conditions they would place on uh, his stewardship, 
It sounds like to me that if they're not very far down the road to rationalizing that move, that they're going to get there. It's You just don't start talking yourselves into scenarios like this and then also setting forth rules that the other person in the negotiation are very is very unlikely to turn down unless you're willing to take the next steps. I, I see what Daniel Taylor is being told as almost an eventuality that Jose Mourinho is going to end up at Old Trafford. I'm <laughs> so this is my worst night not my worst nightmare it's a it's a pretty significant nightmare coming true and I'm having to uh accept it now I, I think you're right I think it is probably going to happen now based on everything we are reading um based on the fact that LVG uh is po- probably on his way out uh, if not already out by the time people listen to this in the morning so in that sense you as a Manchester United supporter, I don't want Mourinho for the... I, I mentioned these things, the same things Daniel Taylor has mentioned. I want to see youth brought through, and I do not see that as a compatible uh, choice with Mourinho. Um, some people talk about Mourinho having brought through a young Porto team and side Deco, but most of those players were bought from other places. They were not uh, Porto youth products. Right. So in that sense... And we all know his history after that with Inter and blah, blah, blah. He, he always leaves an aging squad. He always uses uh, an aging squad. So to me, those are things that are incompatible with United. But at the same time, I have to accept and uh, United supporters like myself have to accept that he is probably the only one left, given that Guardiola is going to go to City, uh, to City who will g- give us some semblance of success. So mm. there you go. Lawrence, would you have wanted Josie Mourinho at your club? A couple of years ago, but I, I don't think anymore, no. Um, he, I mean, he spoke about, um, you know, the, the reason he never went to Liverpool actually, which was never, it was one of those things that it was a bit like, um, Voldemort and, uh, <laughs> there was a reason why no one seems to know the reason. Um, but, the, and then after that, it sort of fell out of love with him a little bit because of what he brought to other teams. Um, I'm not sure that as a United fan, I want Mourinho. Um, but I mean, I was considering today. I'm just sort of considering where United do go from here. And I don't know, it just seems like there's a series of poor decisions being made at the top level by United's board in almost a way to stall until they feel like the uh, the situation is right to strike almost. feels mm. a little bit like United are almost testing the market and they don't, they, they don't like it almost. Mm. And yeah. they've not been tested uh, to have, they've not had to test it for a while because they've had, and it's nothing to do with convenience or anything. They've had someone who set himself up as an institution and made them and left a lot of things in place that should have um, should have served the next guys well. But I, I mean, again, we sort of go back to the look what happened to the institution of Liverpool. Look what happened to was it Mainz or was it no, sorry Werder Bremen um, after fourteen years with who was the manager who left them after fourteen years? Sorry, the name escapes me now. Yeah, sorry. Um, I can look it up. Uh, I don't but, either. Yeah, but but um, basically, you know, you know, when dynasties come to an end, then uh, sometimes there's this transitional period. And what I think United were relying on was the fact that what happened under Ferguson would just continue under the next guy. <laughs> inexplicable teams getting inexplicable results. Yeah, that's certainly something to continue or expect to continue. Uh, guys, we haven't talked about this. Nipun mentioned it on the review podcast this weekend, and I kind of want to touch on it. Uh, I, 
I'm going to warn you that this Ryan Giggs conversation that we're about to have is uh-uh. going to get uncomfortable because I have an uncomfortable view on this. But Nipun, Lawrence hinted on, hinted on something, the idea of putting something in place, um, the idea of getting something that works. I don't see United having anything in place that really works for somebody that hasn't managed a team beyond a few weeks before. I think in their best case scenario, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Louis van Hall would have stabilized the team and put in a structure that Ryan Giggs could then inherit. But if that structure isn't in place, why are you handing it over to somebody who hasn't managed a team before? Yeah, it would be. I think it would be devastating for both the club and Ryan Giggs in that situation. Um, I don't think Giggs has the know-how to... Uh, to manage Man United in spite of his incredible career and his in undoubted love for this club. Um, so in that sense, I, I mean, I have nothing more to add to the fact uh, that I don't think Giggs should be taking over right now. It's way too early. And Lawrence, the uncomfortable thing I, I'm going to th- throw to you because you're a good person to kind of put eh, a check on when people person, are... But, <laughs> he's a good yeah. person to put a check on undue moralizing. I think that's Let what I'm Let Richard finish. Thank you. <laughs> I think we're forgetting that Ryan Giggs is a bad person. <laughs> Ryan Giggs did despicable things to his wife and his brother. Not his no. wife, his brother's wife. <laughs> no, no, he, his wife. Yeah, but by, he did. I mean, wife by cheating. Oh, right, well. right. Yeah, right. True, true. true. Yeah. Now, well, normally, normally, I would just pass over that if this was just a player because it really doesn't have much of an influence on anything. He is in a way. But Ryan oh. Giggs is about to be put in a situation under this hypothetical where he would be in a leadership position where sometimes he would have to make judgments based on moral and ethical considerations. I. I view what he did in his personal life, for me personally, if I were running a club, as disqualifying, as not only being untrustworthy, but unable to exact judgment on some people when you're being put in a position where you might have to enact judgment based on moral and ethical considerations. Do you think I'm going too far there? And just in general, I I don't get why Ryan Giggs gets such a pass on something that is just so utterly disgusting. Are you saying that Ryan Giggs is going to sleep with Chelsea? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> sorry um i don't mean to trivialize your point although partly i do i um well, no tell me if it should be trivialized because part of the reason no, i'm bringing this it, up is because i do feel like if there's a reason more people aren't talking about it then it's possible that i'm exaggerating this well, there are a lot of people talking about it. i mean it's very often the first joke that's made about ryan Giggs. whenever you speak about ryan Giggs, the man who has two names um and i <laughs> I guess what I would say is uh, there, there's very often people say we should, uh, you know, we should overlook or, um, you know, we should keep whatever's off the pitch, off the pitch. But now he's in an off the pitch job. So what do you do? Um, and, and there's all basically you'd also say, Richard, I mean, if he's made that mistake, maybe he's learned from that. You know, people sometimes, although then, you know, his mother-in-law comes back and says, once a cheater, always a cheater. And then, you know, goes from there. What I'm saying is you get into you get into this gray area and there's only really one way of finding out, which is practical application of Ryan Giggs. Mm-hmm. What most people seem to say is that he's earned his place at United to do that. Um, Ooh, that's, there is, that's scary. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's essentially through his service to the club and also the fact that maybe he was one of the students of the game under uh, Sir Alex and probably would have seen a lot of the practices that went on there. Um, and and also maybe the, the, the pull that he would have towards other players. I mean... I don't see it as, or do I? That's my problem. You've actually asked me a question that's floored me a little bit because, I mean, the whole Wayne, you know, there's all the Wayne Rooney thing. And then there's, you know, does it make him a more relatable character for some players who, you know, because he's been through something very publicly, can he then relate to players in a better way? 
What well, I'm saying is it's not it's not just it doesn't just serve him as a to be a bad person. It can, may also serve him to be a good person in that sense. Yeah, I think that's something that maybe we should allow for. Uh, Nipun, I think of situations like John Terry's, which got really exaggerated. And there's mm-hmm. still some as as sorted as that is, there's still some misunderstandings out there as to the exact nature of him and Wayne Bridge and the person, the other person whose name got dragged into public over that. But how is Ryan Giggs supposed to supposed to serve in a leadership position or judge uh, what a player's mindset is in those situations, or or a player's culpability if it if it happens to happen between two teammates when he himself is so compromised? Yeah. So first of all, it's it's an egregious mistake he made. There's no defending what he did. There's absolutely no defending what he did. Um, and I think there's some truth to the fact that he got away with it because he's Ryan Giggs. Um, I don't think he got I, away with it, though. I, I, I think, mean, well, comparatively, comparatively. What do we want, though? No, but what do no, we want? Him to be stood in the stocks in public and, no, and but like, from I think, there's, I think yeah. there's truth to the fact that it's not discussed nearly. So anytime okay. John Terry's brought up, it's discussed way more. His all of the True. stuff that yeah, to the extent he got away with it, he got away with it because we're not talking about it more, right? And I think that comes yeah, down. But to- there, there, there was other stuff that went with that whole thing. That the, the John Terry uh, affair allegations were alongside other problems with John Terry, right? So okay. it was also that he'd let. And so professionally, John Terry had also let people down. Should we also bear that in mind? Yes. But see, Lawrence, then I, I would throw this at you: what what Giggs did objectively is way worse than what John Terry did in that situation because if we're getting to details John Terry slept with an ex uh with the with the teammate's ex well the mother the of his former child. teammate's ex-girlfriend yeah whereas what Ryan Giggs did is for multiple years he was sleeping with his brother's wife at that time so you I, know and I'm not defending I, I'm right. definitely not defending that um, so the, the, all I'm saying is that there is some truth to the fact that he 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 did get away with it a little bit. But what I wanted no, to see, what but what what would you okay? I, I think I think this I is just a choice of words. I think I think I think I think Nipun's just choosing a as choosing a cliche, and he he I I don't think getting away with it is the right term here. It's just that Ryan Giggs maybe didn't Moved get as on. much scrutiny as another person would have in the same situation. Right. That's yeah. You're right. So so, but I think at the, with the same token, I don't think that disqualifies him in any way of as far as managerial decisions. I, I I think if we actually scrutinize the off-field lives of most of people, and anyone with fame and power and money, uh, there would be a lot of questionable decisions made in the background that had limited to no effect on their ability to make decisions with their day job. So I think we can almost bifurcate those two decision processes. And that's what I think we should do with round gigs as well. Maybe, well maybe right. Then you'd also, you'd also say we're getting into sticky ground because, you know, I mean, after one um, national union of journalists party, you've probably got, um, you know, a real sticky situation on your hands there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are holding everyone else to task. Morality. Um, right. We've, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mora- mora- morale wise. Um have you know very often showed themselves up in some some of these situations. So I don't, you know, I don't quite know. Uh, therefore, who is the jury of that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think my stumbling block on this and why I keep going back to is Ryan Giggs isn't being hired into any ordinary job. He's mm-hmm. being hired into a job that is going to be near the top of that profession, football management, uh, and it is a leadership position that could potentially require him to exact moral and ethical judgments as part of his job. So that even that being said, it might not be relevant. 
and I might be dwelling on something in a way that serves some kind of other need. Maybe, maybe with me, there is a need to see Ryan Giggs continue to pay a price for this. Maybe I'm just so morally disgusted by what he's done that I can't let go of it, even when that clinging onto the issue doesn't serve the context of the discussion. And maybe well, let's, let's talk about your childhood, maybe, Richard. <laughs> well, let's, let's go ahead and take a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about Richard Farley's childhood. <laughs> and we'll also talk about Boxing Day matches in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Let's get back to the field, everybody. We've got Boxing Day coming up on Saturday, which means 10 matches, one day spread across four different kickoff times, starting with Manchester United's visit to Stoke City. Main kickoff time sees Bournemouth hosting Crystal Palace, Liverpool hosting Leicester City, Norwich City is at Tottenham, Sunderland is at Manchester City, Chelsea gets Watford, Swansea City hosting West Bromwich Albion, and then Aston Villa hosting West Ham United. After that, Newcastle United gets Everton, and to wrap up the day, Arsenal is out the South Coast to visit Southampton. Ten games, a lot of talking there, gentlemen. Hopefully you guys have something you want to talk about. Lawrence, let's go to you first. Which of these games jump out to you? Uh, obviously, the Liverpool game jumps out because it seems like such a, such a great Boxing Day uh, fixture. Mm. Fantastic football from Leicester City and the potential of such fantastic football. Or actually exhilarating football. I'm not actually sure how fantastic <laughs> it's been at times. Um, from Liverpool. Fantastic kind of so, makes a quality claim. Uh, yeah. And also uh, the fact that Skirtle's was out for six weeks for Liverpool. Yikes. Which obviously leaves Liverpool with a real problem at the back. Yeah. Um, how, do they, that, how do they solve that problem beyond Sacco has to play better? Sacco, Sacco has to therefore come on the back line. Mignolet will be back. Uh, although Bogdan In did central say... central defense? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, which would actually be most people saying an upgrade on his current position um and then uh because he didn't use his hands anyway um but then bogdan today said on the website uh don't worry it won't happen again and i sort of thought you handed your notice in <laughs> and he didn't he hadn't uh Lawrence, and- will 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 he go to john or again maybe do the lucas thing in central defense along with uh Sacco? Or the colatore thing I mean, Colo oh, Torre, Torre. That's, right. that's right. Although it says a lot about, I, I don't actually think it says a lot about Colo Torre, but it would be a joke to say it says a lot about Colo Torre. The fact was that Klopp had other substitutions he wanted to make. And um, I guess what he, he would have assumed was that if Liverpool could get back into the game through pressing higher up the pitch, then there will be less pressure on the defence. But huh? as let's, it happened, there was really, more pressure on the defence. Let's really test the versatility of Henderson and Milner. Put one of them back, but both of them back there. <laughs> you know what? I, I I still think Milner would do a great job in central defence. He's probably had more defensive headers than most Liverpool centre-backs have in recent years. I, I don't think it's the most ludicrous idea given the other options that are out there. This seems like the marquee matchup of the weekend. Nipun, it's, you know, Leicester's at the top of the table, another big uh, road matchup, one a month ago, people probably would have pointed out and gone, you know, this is where this is where the Foxes start to tumble or this is where their tumbling continues. As is, based on the styles that we've seen the two teams play, it almost seems like Leicester is perfectly situated to take advantage of a Liverpool team that hasn't really shown that much tactical versatility under Klopp. Definitely. I think we talked a little bit about his um, possible naivety uh, in the previous pod. Um, I, I think he's learning as he goes along, and I think it's better to have a manager that... Uh, is naive at first and learns rather than someone who comes in and is very dogmatic and s- states his quote-unquote philosophy for s- 12, yeah. 18 months. Without but you don't even- think Klopp is dogmatic? I mean, he has only no. one way he wants to play. No, I, I think when you when you see his record at Dortmund, I, I think he did show some taxi- tactical flexibility when, when mm. Shinji, Kagawa, Shinji Kagawa 
who was his main guy left for Man United, he, he really rearranged the pieces and sure. uh, had uh, and showed some flexibility. So in that sense, I think Klopp will be able to get it right. Uh, I'm very curious to see what he does this week against high-flying Leicester City. And um, you have to say that uh, Leicester City come into this game as favorites. I mean, that's an obvious statement. Mm. Let's go to Stamford Bridge uh, because this is going to be Goose Heating's return engagement with Chelsea. He sat out this weekend's game, watched it with Didier Drogba and Robin Abramovich from the stands, but he's actually going to be on the touchline this weekend. Well, maybe he'll be in the stands. I don't want to, Goose, I don't want to dictate to you where you stand during the game. Uh, Nipun, they're facing Watford, though. Yeah. So if the main criticism of Chelsea, one of the main criticisms has been kind of a stoicism and attack and reliance on William to just do something from either a dead ball or otherwise, Watford isn't the ideal team to be going up against. Certainly not. Uh, I think we'll get more of a, another data point uh, in the argument whether City uh, Chelsea were just being held back by Mourinho. Right now, we just have one data point, and the whole world is analyzing, over-analyzing that one data point, uh, a win against Sunderland. So it will be interesting to see what they do against uh, an informed Watford team, a Watford team that has good for a good forward lineup. Uh, and you know, w- w- we'll see. We'll see what happens. Other games that come to mind interest to you, Nipun? Yeah, the other one that comes to mind to me is United Stoke. Um, not be- not just because I'm a United supporter, but more so because we don't know who's going to be at the uh, helm for this game. It it might not be Van Hall. It might be Van Hall. And it, given both those situations, Richard, it's going to be a very different prediction. Oh, my God. The idea of starting Boxing Day with a Stoke team that can't score against a Manchester United <laughs> team that their only goal is to keep the other team from scoring. Oh, my God. That sounds terrible. Lawrence, let's talk about another game because I don't want to dwell on that one anymore. Okay. Sorry, Richard. <laughs> That's okay. So Swansea, uh, West, West Brom actually pops out to me. Um, mm. I was really intrigued by the way that West Brom were, I'm not going to say found out, am I? But I'm going to say uh, sort of undone in, in the previous game. Um, and uh, obviously the two red cards uh, for them uh, <laughs> did, did that. But, uh, you know, I mean, after the previous week, there was, where there were so many comments about the way that they were played, the physicality of the way that they played. All those kind of things sort of came back to roost in a way. Um, and I think against Swansea, we're going to see uh, Swansea attempting to get back towards the Swansea way with a little bit more confidence. And West Brom looking to just shut that down completely away from home. Mm. Um, does, it, does it frustrate you guys to see Johnny Evans playing week in, week out in holding midfield really. role? No, no. I can't actually, you know, I actually really love pragmatism in football. And as frustrating as I used to find it a few years ago, I sometimes just back it because uh, after a while I got a bit sick of all the Barcelona supporters and everyone else in that camp just sort of going, there's only really one way to play. Hmm. Um, And actually what I really enjoy now is a really frustrating and boring nil-nil. I like the idea of putting a central defender in front of your two if you don't have somebody else that can play there. But But you um, do. You have Darren Fletcher. They're also playing Darren Fletcher there. So that's amazing. But at the same time, I I would feel really bad about myself if I had strong feelings about Johnny Evans. I just it just doesn't seem like something a guy living in Oregon should have strong feelings about. I don't I don't have strong feelings about Johnny Evans. Let's go back to talking about your, went your, on at, your... You just went on at length about Ryan Giggs, and now suddenly <laughs> you have nothing to say about Johnny Evans. Right, I, I would say that Ryan Giggs is somebody that should pop onto people's radars more, a little more than Johnny Evans. I mean, I don't know. One of the best left wings of all time, especially in England, uh, compared to Ryan Johnny Giggs. Evans. What's oh. that? 
And then Ryan Giggs. <laughs> and then Ryan Giggs. Uh, gentlemen, there's one game that I want to take the privilege of talking about, and that's Bournemouth versus Crystal Palace. Uh, Bournemouth alluded to by Lawrence in the West Brom discussion. Got another victory last weekend, 2-1 to one victory at the Hawthorns, taking on a Crystal Palace team that we know how this is going to play out. Gentlemen, Eddie Howe's team is going to keep the ball. They're going to move the ball. They're going to push Crystal Palace back, and it's going to come down to whether they can keep the Yannick Bolasies of the world, the Punchins of the world, Connor, if Connor Wickham plays, I don't know who's going to start up top for Crystal Palace in this one. Maybe they won't start somebody up top. Who knows? But Lawrence, that's going to be the central tension here, the, the clash of styles and whether Alan Pardew's formula that came through last weekend can come through again against a Bournemouth team that's won three in a row. Yeah, although you'd say Bournemouth are um, going to look fairly exposed against those guys just running at their back line, Balassi, Zaha. Uh, Zaha is Kabai back, back for this game? Yeah, I think he is. So they're, okay. Oof, yeah. So. Um, so then you've got someone who can pull the strings even more in midfield. And I do think that, right. you know, Palace uh, did, did, did end up feeling uh, that his the loss of him last weekend, obviously. Um I, I still feel a little bit sorry for, although actually it says on my injury report here that maybe Kabai may still be out due to foot injury. Okay. Uh, but we don't know. They're also missing uh, Millie and Mac and Dwight Gale as well. I, I still think um, that I, I like the idea of playing Balassi a little bit higher up the pitch. I like his pace running at the back line. I just wonder whether this is the end of that run for Bournemouth because, you know, looking at the way the two styles contrast each other and the bloody fact that Alan Pardew keeps getting wins uh, it's it just seems in the cards doesn't it it, it does Especially away from home Palace have been really yeah good. yeah yeah, yeah. Just... What's, why though that, that's my question is why it what sets Palace apart different to everyone else yeah and I, I think it bears noting that this has been the trend throughout the Pardew era um, at Selhurst Park they've always been much better on the road the old logic of the stylistic tactical preferences of Pardew working better on the road seem to hold up. But guys, it seems like it's so exaggerated with them. Yeah, but that's because of the way they play. I mean, the two, you do have, you've got some very exaggerated characters within that squad, haven't you? Uh, or exaggerated characters in the way that they express themselves out on the pitch. Balassi is so explosive. Zaha is so explosive. Yeah. Kabai has such control. Scott Dan in that back line. And then whoever they sort of got in the middle, almost by comparison, seems a lot less exciting. But actually, Connor Wickham for a while was spoken about as a very exciting young talent and has shown himself to be able to um, fulfill elements of that. So, uh, you know, to some extent, I sort of feel a bit sorry for the players who seem a little less exciting, if you like, uh, mm. um, there. Because actually, for a while, they were very happy with the the very stable and solid players, uh, you know, the Punchins and uh, even Cameron Jerome was there for a while. Um, so... You know, if if you know what I mean, he seems to spice the side up a little bit and uh, brought the best out of those players. What I do wonder is how how much longer that can go for. We've got 10 matches on Saturday this weekend, and we're going to be coming back to you with our normal show on Sunday. Boxing Day, big tradition. Our traditional afternoon Boxing Day show. At least I think that's a tradition here. Regardless, we'll be back to you in a couple of days. Until then, though, for my co-host, Nimpun Chopra, Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley, asking you to enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. 
Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. <laughs>